0: All right, this morning we're going to be going back to 1 Peter. We've been studying 1 Peter together over the past month or so. We're beginning our study in 1 Peter. We haven't gotten very far. The introduction and greeting that Peter gives us in verses 1 and 2 is where we spent most of our time so far. So today we're going to move ahead a little bit more. 1 Peter, we're going to start at verse 3 and read down through verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's take a minute and pray before a message this morning. Our God and Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We know that it is truth, it is your inspired revelation to us, and in it is everything that you want us to know about you and about ourselves, about your church, about life, and about victory and having victory in this life. And so, Lord, as we read and study this passage together, Lord, may our hearts truly bless and thank you, even as this passage tells us, because of what you've done in us and through us in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to rejoice together as we study. Help us to see the things you want us to understand. And may your spirit enlighten us to these truths. And, Lord, empower me. I pray that you give me strength. Fill me with your spirit now. Give me wisdom. Give me your words to speak so that we might hear from you. We might be encouraged and chastised even and exhorted by your truth now. And so, Lord, we just give ourselves in this time to you. Do your work, we pray, and receive all the glory to yourself. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first couple verses that we spent a couple weeks looking at, Peter starts in this greeting by addressing his audience in a way that sets the stage for the entire rest of the book. And it kind of gives us a foundation of the message that we're going to see all throughout 1 Peter. And as we've seen, he calls us or calls his readers strangers. And then he says, who have been chosen by God, separated or sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then sprinkled by the blood of Christ, and as we saw that um, just last week, that work is the work of the Trinity, okay and all three persons of the, the Trinity are involved in, in, in our salvation and our security. but Peter says we're strangers, we're not strangers because we don't understand what's going on or know where we are, but we're strangers because this earth for those who are true believers, is not our real home or our final home. We have a home that is waiting for us in heaven. We know that. That's what the Bible tells us. And that is our future destiny, our future inheritance, he tells us here in verses 3 through 5. And so because we are chosen by God, because we are separated out by the Spirit, because we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ because we know we have a home waiting for us apart from this earth, therefore we should be excited about what God has done and is doing. And that's exactly what Peter begins verse 3 with, because he talks to the strangers who have been chosen by God, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Christ, looking forward to this home, and he gets so overwhelmed that he just breaks out in a spontaneous doxology of praise to God in verse 3. And that's how verse 3 starts. It says, "Blessed be God, the Father, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." That blessed is just a, an outburst of praise from Peter. We'll call that the doxology here. The commentator D. Edmund Hebert says of this passage and the following verses, he says this beautiful passage is the outpouring of an adorning heart. Only one who has devoutly contemplated the greatness of our salvation could utter such a magnificent paean of praise, one that prepares and encourages the suffering soul to steadfastly continue the spiritual battle. And that's what Peter's message is going to be. Our security in the salvation we have in Christ, is absolutely assured. And therefore, he goes on in verses 6 and following, even though we suffer adversity in this world, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We have something to hold on to that will get us through this life until we get to that better life that is to come. And so he breaks out in this doxology of praise. Now, the word blessed here, we usually associate with the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they who mourn, blessed are the meek. This is a different word, blessed. The word in Matthew is the Greek word makarios. It means to be well off or happy. And so you could read Matthew 5 as Jesus is preaching and say, happy are those who are meek. Happy are those who are poor in spirit and who mourn over sin, etc., This isn't that same word. This is a different word. This is the Greek word eulogatos, and it's the word we get our word eulogy from. Now, that might sound a little bit uh, mournful to you, because usually a eulogy is associated with a funeral. But actually, the word eulogatos means to praise something. Or to point out its good points. And isn't that what a eulogy usually does? It remembers a person who has passed for the good things that they contributed or left behind. Their legacy, the good memories. That's the eulogy. And so Peter is giving a eulogy to God here. Not because God is dead, but because God is worthy of praise. And that's what this word means. Eulogetos means to praise. Now it's interesting, this word eulogetos is not used that often in scripture, but the only times it's used, it is always applied to God and never applied to man. Because man is not worthy of praise. Only God is worthy of praise. God is not meant to praise man. Man is meant to praise God. And that's this word blessed, praise to God, because he is the only one worthy of receiving that praise. In fact, if you read this passage or this verse in the original manuscripts, uh, the older manuscripts actually leave out the blessed is, not the blessed, but the word is or be. It says blessed be in the King James, and it reads, Directly this way. It just says, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just a statement of who is worthy of praise, but it's actually a command to us to praise God. That's what Peter's saying. He says, we're strangers. We've been secured by God and chosen by God in salvation through Jesus Christ. Therefore, bless God because of what he's done. And that's this eulogy or thanksgiving this praise uh, doxology of praise that breaks out here he says God is blessed praise God and he encourages us to do the same to praise God so he begins this letter by praising God and then calling for us to do the same thing And that idea then progresses throughout the rest of the book because we're praising God. We know that God is in control. We have an assurance of our salvation if we've trusted in Christ, if we've been chosen by the Father, if we've been secured and separated by the Holy Spirit, we know what is to come. So why shouldn't we praise God? And so he says in verse three, blessed be God or bless God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, in this section, he focuses on the inheritance that we have in salvation. And that's why he's blessing God, because he knows everything that God is giving us in salvation, we don't already have. There is a lot more to come. Now, there are three aspects to salvation. There's the past aspect. Jesus has died for our sins. He's already forgiven us. He's cleansed us. That's done. There's the present aspect where the Holy Spirit continues to sanctify us in salvation, to cleanse our daily sins as we go to him in in asking forgiveness, to continue to do his work in making us more like Christ, to sin less, to glorify God more. That's the that ongoing work, the present work of salvation in us. And then there's the future aspect of salvation that is to come. That's the inheritance part when our bodies, the last corrupted part of our, our redeemed person, is made whole as well. This body's going to go away. God's going to give us a brand new body that's glorified and perfect. No more sin, no more pain. You can read all of that in Revelation. And so that's the future. That's the inheritance that we have. And that's what Peter's thinking about when he bursts out into praise to God, saying, praise God for this inheritance that he's promised us. Now, we have to look at this inheritance. I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes looking at the aspect of this inheritance that Peter points out in these three verses. And so first, he points out the source of our inheritance. And of course, that's who he's blessing. God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word God here is the word for Jehovah, Yahweh. This is the Old Testament God. Israel looked at God as the one who promised them the, the, the land, the one who brought them and delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. This is Elohim, the first person of the Trinity, and we recognize him as God the Father. Now, the, blue, the, the Jews blessed and worshiped God as the creator. And as I said, as their redeemer and deliverer from Egypt. That was their focus. In fact, we've talked about the fact that uh, when Jesus was born, when he started his ministry on earth, the Jews didn't accept him. Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews had been taught all through the law that there is only one God. We can only worship one God. So what are you saying, that there's now two gods? And then Jesus talks about the Spirit of God. Now there's three gods, and they couldn't handle that. And so they worshiped God, the Father, Yahweh, Jehovah. And that's what Peter is saying here, blessed be Jehovah. But he connects Jehovah with Jesus Christ here. And he says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the commentator James B. Kaufman says this, by these words, Peter showed that Christianity was in no sense a departure from the God of Israel and of the Hebrew patriarchs, but was still a worship of that same God through the acceptance of God's only begotten Son. And I've mentioned this before, as you look at the early church, and I've done some study about the the very early church and the practices and the things that they did within the worship. And the early church, the first 3,000 basically were Jews, remember at Pentecost, there were 120 Jews, they got saved, and then the first, most of the first 3,000 were Jews, and so the early church was very Jewish. And in fact, the early church for a long time, almost a hundred years, not only worshipped together as a church, but also went and worshipped God, Jehovah, in the synagogues. Their prayers sounded the same. In fact, in the early church, they prayed the same prayers that the Jews prayed in the synagogue. It wasn't a new God. It wasn't a different God. It was the same God Jehovah, God the Father. They just now recognized within the church that Jesus Christ not only was his son, but that he was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and that he had come to be the savior of people's sins. So that was the big difference between the, the, the uh, Jews in the synagogue and the Jews in the early church accepting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so Peter makes that statement here. He is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He connects the two together. Now, it was the father who sent Jesus, his son, to become a man, and become sin for us. And these are the things, I think, that Peter is thinking about based on the context of the passage because it's all about the salvation that we have in him. But he's thinking of God the Father who sent his son to become a man so that he could die for our sin. It was God the Father, remember, who turned his back on Jesus Christ as Jesus hung on the cross as he took our sin upon him and taking it to hell. It was God the Father also who raised his son on the third day from the dead, and he broke the power of sin and death so that we might have eternal life. And it is God, the Father, who has given all believers to Jesus Christ, to his Son, that we might be called brethren and children in his family. So when Peter says, blessed be God the Father, we know exactly who he's talking about. It's the same God the Jews worshipped. It's the God who is the Father of our Savior, the one responsible for our salvation. Now, Peter uses... The possessive noun here, our. If you look in the middle of that verse, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the or your. He says our. He makes it personal here. And Peter uses the possessive pronoun our here to describe Jesus Christ. He said, God is the father of Jesus Christ, but he is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying here is, think about the capacity in which he belongs to us and we belong to him. He is our Lord, first of all, our sovereign one, our king. In 1 Peter chapter 3, just a couple chapters forward from this. verse 22, Peter says, talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. He's not talking about some guy, some great prophet who lived on this earth, who left us a bunch of good teachings and now is gone. And that's the way a lot of people look at Jesus, because he doesn't belong to them and they don't belong to him. If you think Jesus was just a great man who lived and left us a bunch of great teachings, you missed the substance of what he was all about. Peter says he is ours. He is our Lord. That means God has appointed him authority over all. Now, he didn't need to do that because Jesus is God. He is part of creation. In fact, he he participated in creation, according to Colossians chapter 1. All things uh, consist in him, they continue to abide in him. And so Jesus is God, but God the Father, the Bible tells us, has given him authority over all the earth. And that will come to fruition fully when he comes in his kingdom, in the millennial kingdom. But for now, he is our Lord. That means he is our master. He has authority over us. Now, remember, I talked about when G- when God chose us, it's like he went into the slave market of sin. He looked around at all of us who were slaves to sin and those who would surrender to become his servants, he chose because he knows that we will serve him, that we will be his slaves. I said, God didn't save us so that we could be free to do whatever we want. God saves us to serve him. And so here it says, Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is our master. That's what salvation is all about, is understanding that Jesus is our master and surrendering to him. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and in the end everlasting life. That means he's in control. He calls the shots. He tells us how we're supposed to live. Everything about our lives now in Jesus Christ is ruled by him. And so we call him our Lord. He is our sovereign ruler, and yet he doesn't treat us as subjects. He treats us as what? Brethren. God the Father treats us as his children. Remember the parable of the the, uh, prodigal son. The son goes and wastes the father's inheritance, everything that God has given him, or the master his father has given him. And when he finally hits bottom and he realizes that he's destitute, that he's wasted his life, that he's uh, uh, dishonored his father, he goes crawling back home and he says, if you will only accept me as a servant, just so I have some place to live and something to eat. Don't even call me your son anymore, just accept me as a servant. And what does the father do? He runs to him when he sees him afar off. He hugs him. He puts his own coat on him. He throws a big party, and he says, welcome home, my son. See, that's a picture of salvation. We crawl to God, and we say, I'm only worthy to be your servant, and yet Jesus, our master, accepts us as his brother. God the Father accepts accepts us as his child, and that's how we're treated. Look at this next name that that Peter says. He says, our Lord, what? Jesus. That's his human name. That means he was a man. He became one of us. He took sin for us. This is the name that is given to the Son of God as he lived in a human body on this earth, just like we do. Now, we have to remember, though, that this Jesus came to earth because we needed a Savior. He didn't come to experiment and to find out what all the the, the fuss was about on earth. He knew. He didn't come because um, he was obligated to. He came because we needed a Savior. And he became one of us so that he could die for us. And so this name Jesus connects him with us. It makes him like us. And the Bible tells us that he has experienced all the suffering that we could ever experience. We know that he has experienced all the temptation that we would ever experience. And the Bible tells us that in Hebrews as well. And so he understands us. He is one of us, literally. And his name is Jesus. And so even though he we are he is our lord and we are his servants, He has accepted us as his brethren. In John chapter 15, verse 15, he says, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. What is Jesus withholding from us that we need to know? Nothing. What is Jesus withholding from us that we need in order to survive or to live? Nothing. What is Jesus withholding from us in order that we might live a victorious and successful Christian life in a a fallen world? Nothing. He's given us everything. Ephesians tells us we have experienced all the heavenly riches, all the the wisdom, all of the power of God in Jesus Christ because he is our brother. And so this name Jesus, and when we say our Jesus, we're reminding ourselves and Peter's reminding us here, he is our brother Jesus who went through everything we go through, experienced everything we experience, suffered more than we'll ever suffer, had every temptation that we could ever come across, and he's there for us. So he's our Lord Jesus. And then the last title is Christ. Now, this is not a name, this is a title. It means anointed one, it's the word that's used in association with the Old Testament promised Messiah. He is the promised Messiah. We have to accept that if we are to truly believe in him. And that was the problem the Jews had. They could not accept that this man who was born in in Bethlehem and lived in Nazareth of all places, how could he be the Messiah? Okay, so he's got this little gathering big deal. He teaches great things. Okay, that's nice. Is he going to deliver us from Rome? That's all they cared about. And when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the people just, at, just before that, they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw him heal people. They saw all the power that was in him. And as he's riding into Jerusalem, they're thinking, finally, he's coming to do, overthrow Rome and set us free. Here's the Messiah we've been waiting for. And they said, "Blessed be the name. Blessed be the one that comes in the name of the Lord." And then two days later, they realize, "Oh, wait, he's not going to overthrow Rome. Well, we don't need him then. Let's crucify him." But he is the Anointed One, the Messiah, and he is our Messiah, not just. The Messiah. It's not a general thing. Peter says he's ours. He came for us. And he's the one who not only came as a man, but he's promised to return as king to finally deliver us from this world. And as we read in Revelation and other passages, all who believe will be part of his final kingdom that lasts forever and ever. And we will live with him with eternal joy and happiness and peace that we can never experience on this earth. But those people who reject the Messiahship of Jesus Christ will never understand that and will never experience it. They will suffer eternal death, hopelessly separated from God and from Christ and all of his goodness forever. That's what the Bible says. We must accept him as our Messiah, the one who is promised by God to come and deliver us, not from Rome, not from corrupted government, but from our sin, because that's our greatest need. And all of that is contained in this name that Peter gives us, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him which this glory inheritance of salvation is bound up and secured. And so it's no wonder, as Peter talks about this inheritance, that he breaks out in this doxology of praise for God. Then he goes on and he says, here's God's motive for our inheritance. He said, blessed be God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, it's because of God's mercy that we have this inheritance in salvation. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means all of us are guilty. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. So none of us deserve anything good. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it starts this way. For the wages of sin is death. In other words, we have all earned death. Eternal death, not just physical death. And yet because of God's mercy... We have an inheritance waiting for us. Mercy can be defined as withholding punishment, which we deserve. We all deserve to be punished. We all deserve hell. But God, in his mercy, has given us a way to escape that through Jesus Christ. In Romans 6.23, I read the first part, the wages of sin is death, but the second part, is the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the mercy. We deserve death, but God showed his mercy in sending Jesus to save us. And so the gift of salvation in our inheritance begins with God's mercy. Spurgeon says this, in fact, all God's goodness begins with mercy. And Spurgeon says, no other attribute of God could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, God's justice condemns us. God's holiness frowns upon us. God's power crushes us. God's truth confirms the threatening of the law and God's wrath fulfills it. It's only from the mercy of our God that our hope even begins. Mercy is what brings the goodness of God so that we can experience it. Now, mercy and grace are very closely related, but they are different. They go hand in hand, but they're a little different from each other. We talked about abounding or multiplying in grace just a week ago. So think of it this way. God's mercy offers us the opportunity to be God's servant, rather than the servant of sin. He's not going to leave us there in that slave house of sin to be crushed and destroyed in judgment. And so he gives us in his mercy a reprieve from suffering the consequences of our original original choice to serve ourselves in sin. That's God's mercy. And then his grace elevates us from just being his servant to being his son to be made a son with all the blessings inherent in being part of God's family. There's grace, much more than we deserve. But mercy then becomes the foundation of God's provision for our salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Paul says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among them whom we also had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So Paul says we were all there. We all were condemned. We all were walking according to our own lust. We all served ourselves as children of Satan, servants of sin. And then the good news, verse 4 But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. It's God's mercy that offers us salvation, that gives us the opportunity for an eternal inheritance. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We can't earn it, there's nothing we can do to gain heaven but in God's mercy, he gave us the opportunity to have it in Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter two, verse 10. Again, here's our author today in the next chapter. He says, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy before, but now you have received mercy. Talking to believers. So God then, out of his infinite love and free, abundant, and limitless mercy, chose to grant salvation to those who believe and trust in him in faith. And so our salvation is not based on good works, on any merit wherewith we might seek to gain God's favor or impress him in some way. It wasn't because God was obligated in some way to give us something, to give us a way out, an escape from our sin, an escape from the consequence of our sin. In fact, if we talk about God's obligation, God was obligated by his holiness to destroy us and give us what we deserve. But in his mercy, he sent Jesus to pay the price for sin that we could not pay ourselves. And he freed us from the dungeon of sin which, in which we were just sitting and waiting for our day of execution to happen. God's mercy delivered us from that. And so that's the motive, out of God's mercy. Then we look at the transformation through God's mercy. What has he done? He's begotten us again unto a lively hope. This phrase, begotten again, is the Greek word anagana'o. And this is only used by Peter here in this verse and in verse 23, this specific word. Now, it's very closely related to born again that we read in John chapter 3 when Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So they're very closely related. But what is this begotten again or the born again talking about? Well, in order for someone to receive the eternal blessings of salvation, first We must be made different. I'll use the word transformed. Not the old, made into something new. And that's what Jesus was saying when he talked to Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. Not just born as a human being, not just doing good works as a human being, but you are dead in sins in your spirit, and therefore your spirit needs to be born in Christ. Needs to receive true spiritual life. That's what the substance of salvation is. And so Peter uses a a different word, but the same idea of being born again. And he says, God has begotten us again. Because of his mercy, we are born again in him. In order for us to receive the eternal blessings of salvation, we must first be transformed into something new. You, You have the analogy of a butterfly. You see that caterpillar. And those caterpillars are cute, right? And they're crawling around and sometimes you step on them and they make a mess. Okay, and then they're gone. Okay, that's us in our sin. And that's what God should do to us. But he's given us the opportunity to become a butterfly. To be transformed through that rebirth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Not the old thing, not the old person that's been reformed, not just cleaned up a little bit. It's a new creature, all new ideals, all new goals, all new character, because now we have the spirit of God in us. And so we have to receive a new life. And in fact, that's the word, the lively hope, a living hope. We've been transformed. We've been begotten again to a living hope. What's the hope we had before we're saved? Death. That's what we have to look forward to, right? We've been studying in Ecclesiastes, and Solomon has faced this conundrum. He's searched out all of the pleasures, all of the work, all of the experiences of life, and he's come to this conclusion. We are born, we live, we die. It all means nothing apart from God. And the new life that we have been transformed to receive here Is what gives us substance to life. And so he says we've been we've been begotten to a lively hope, a living hope, a hope that we have life in the future, not just life in this earth. Because this isn't life. If this is all there was, Paul says we'd be of all men most miserable. But we have a living hope. Because there's life beyond this life. We're born again to a living hope because we have eternal life in a Savior who has conquered death. And so even though this physical body may have to die, the spirit is not going to die. Our soul is going to live with God in heaven forever. And by the way, the soul is that eternal part of man that will exist someplace. Either it's going to be living in heaven forever with God, or it will be suffering in hell forever in fire. But it will last forever now, this eternal life, this hope beyond this life, people in Jesus' day, even the disciples didn't grasp that the way we have today, the way it's explained to us today. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament, okay they're working off the Old Testament, and you don't see a lot about eternal life that's very clear there and so when Jesus talked about the resurrection an eternal life that's going to come through his death. Even Peter, the the author of this book here, Peter's the one that stood up and said, no, Lord, you're not going to die. No, no, no. You're the Lord. You, You can't die. And Jesus said, no, I have to die to give you life. See, Peter didn't even get that. But now here's Peter years later, understanding that Jesus had to die because we needed a Savior to give us a living hope, a hope that there is life. Beyond this life. And the living hope that we have is because, I'm sorry, the hope is living because it's set upon an inheritance. As you look at what he describes in verse 4, it's an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Here's what we have to look forward to life that is incorruptible. That means it's not going to be corrupted, it's not going to decay, it's not going to fall apart, it's not going to hurt anymore, it's not going to be sorrow anymore. Okay, all those things we read in Revelation about the eternal kingdom. Incorruptible. It can't be changed or made worse. And I don't think God is going to give us something that's just okay when we get to heaven. It's going to be perfect. And when Peter says it's incorruptible, that means it will never get worse than perfect. Now, this is significantly different than anything that we can inherit in this earth. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6 Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, an incorruptible inheritance, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our treasures here on earth, where all of them are going to be burned up someday, or is our treasure waiting for us in that inheritance in heaven? Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Spurgeon says it's also called a living hope because it's imperishable. Other hopes fade like withering flowers, the hopes of the rich, the boasts of the proud. All these will die out as a candle when it flickers in the socket. The hope of the greatest monarch has been crushed before our eyes. He sets up the standard of victory too soon and has seen it trailed in the mire. There is no unwaning hope beneath the changeful moon. The only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Peter says that's our lively hope, that it's a life incorruptible. It will not fade away. It cannot be taken away from us. The word inheritance, by the way, has its roots in the Old Testament. This was first given, and Peter's referring to the promise that God gave to Israel, that he would give them the promised land. That was their inheritance. They would have it as a possession. That's another translation of this word in Hebrew. Possession. Now, in the Hebrew prophecies, when you look at the Old Testament, the Jews understood this because in Hebrew, when they write about the promises or the prophecies that God said he will do or will accomplish, they wrote it, and here's your grammar lesson for today, in the perfect tense, okay? The perfect tense. Now, Hebrew doesn't have a past tense. It's different than English. So the perfect tense meant that it is something that has been fulfilled or already been completed. Now think about that. They wrote prophecies of the future and the promises of God to be fulfilled in the future in past tense. Because if God says it, there is absolutely no doubt that it will happen. And that's what Peter is saying with his inheritance. That's this incorruptible inheritance. He doesn't give us a lot of details about what it actually is, but he says it's not going to go away. It's not going to be corrupted. It's not going to fall apart. It can't be changed. We're going to have it forever. And so it's not subject to corruption and death like everything else on this earth, including the body we live in. I mean, we prayed for sick people today. Many of you probably are not feeling really well today. Perfect. I'm not even going to ask to show of hands, okay? Nobody's perfect, but most of us probably don't feel perfect either. But you know what in heaven? Incorruptible. And that's why we can't experience this inheritance unless we're truly born again. Because an only an incorruptible body and an incorruptible Uh, inheritance can go together. Unregenerate man does not have the capacity to enjoy this inheritance that Peter's talking about. Um, One pastor said it would be like rewarding a blind man by showing him the most beautiful sunset or taking him to an art museum. Think about that. What good does it do a blind man? Nothing. He can't see it. He can't experience it. And Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15.50, he says, I tell you, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. And so this inheritance is only secured in Christ and through Christ for those of us who have been transformed in him. We must become incorruptible in salvation to inherit that incorruptible inheritance. Now, the, inher- the security of our inheritance is right here in verse 5. I'm sorry, the end of verse 4 going into verse 5. He says, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The blessings of our inheritance are secure because they're in heaven. Now, heaven is defined as the dwelling place of God. God does not change. Heaven does not change. God will not let heaven be defiled or be corrupted. That's why he kicked Satan out. Because he couldn't have him live there in corruption. And so again, we have this contrast with the earthly inheritance. The promise of the heavenly inheritance is certain because we are kept by what? Look at what the verse says. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God. Now, what if it was who are kept by by the power of yourself, by the power of your own will, by the power of your own disciplined life, we'd be sunk. But it's not according to us. It's according to the power of God. That inheritance is secured by the power of God. It's the power of God that has saved us. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We are kept in the power of God. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that includes when we get to heaven. Boy, does that include when we get to heaven. That's the fullness of it. It seems like today the gates of hell are prevailing. When we get to heaven, the gates of hell will be gone. Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. We read this this morning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All of the tribulations and trials of this world, can they draw us away from, take us out of God's hand? And the inheritance we have secured in him? Absolutely not. He says, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But he says this, no, nay, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the power of God that secures that inheritance for us. And when the the Sadducees came to Jesus and questioned him in Mark 12, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought... This life is all there is. We live, we die, we cease to exist. And so they were tempting him and they're saying, okay, in this so-called resurrection, you know, if this woman marries a guy and he dies and then she marries his brother and he dies and she does this seven times. And so there's seven brothers who married this one woman and they all die. Whose wife is she in the resurrection? They weren't looking for an answer. They were mocking Jesus. And in his wisdom... Jesus answered them and he said, here's the reason why you don't understand and why you're mistaken, because you don't understand the scripture, nor do you understand the power of God. You can't get past the resurrection. You can't understand that it's something that is real because you have no idea what the power of God is or what it can do. The only thing that can guarantee us an eternal inheritance in heaven is the power of God. In fact, When we struggle and doubt, it's because we doubt the power of God. If we're not sure if we're saved, it's because we don't understand the power of God. The power of God is held in His promises to us, they will not fail. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, that our faith should stand not in the wisdom of men, not in what we understand, but in the power of God. What do we have faith in to get us to heaven? Oh, I walked an aisle. I said a prayer. That doesn't do it. It's the power of God. We don't have to keep ourselves secure in salvation because we were both put there and were kept there by God's power. So this security in God's work then and in his power enables us to endure through faith. Look at what Paul, or Peter says, who are kept by the power of God through faith. There's where our faith resides, in the power of God. He's told us who he is. He's told us what he can do. He's told us how he can change our life. He's told us that he can give us an eternal inheritance, secure in heaven. Are we going to trust that power of God? And so it's our faith that keeps us in the power of God. Our salvation isn't complete yet. I told you that at the beginning. We're still waiting for that future, really, the best part of salvation is yet to come. And Peter says that future aspect of salvation is the part we haven't received. That's the inheritance that's still waiting for us. Look at the end of verse 5. Unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We haven't gotten all there is. Thank the Lord we haven't gotten all there is. There's greater to come. We read Romans 8 this morning. We know nothing can take us out of the hand of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, stay dead. But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. <coughs> Excuse me. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised imperishable or incorruptible. And we will be changed. For this perishable, talking about this body, must put on incorruptible. And this mortal must put on immortality. And when this corruptible have put on incorruption and this mortal have put on immortality, then we'll come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for, that final victory. That's the inheritance that we have waiting for us in heaven. And so as believers, we've already been blessed by God in this body. We've received salvation and the assurance of that salvation. We've received his spirit and his presence. He's with us all the time. We have his promises that he will take care of us. He will meet our needs, that he hears our prayers. We have all that in salvation. We've experienced his grace We've experienced his peace, his love, his mercy, etc. But there's coming a day when we will receive far more from God than we can ever have in this earth. That eternal inheritance. We have a heavenly inheritance waiting for us, and if we continue in faith, trusting that God will keep us in his salvation through the strength of his power, then we know we'll get there now that inheritance is available to everyone but it's only going to be received by those who believe in jesus christ as their savior john 112 says but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of god even to them that believe on his name we must believe in the power of god to save us in the power of jesus blood to cleanse us from all sin in the power of God to keep us in his care and in his hand until the day he calls us home. We must believe. And if we've already been secured by God for this eternal inheritance, then our, our response should be what Peter's is. Blessed be God. Look at what he's done. It's all his work. Blessed be the Lord. But if you don't have that assurance of eternal life waiting for you in heaven, today is the day of salvation. All of us can have that assurance that Peter is talking about before you leave this building today. But it all comes down to whether you surrender to the power of God and trust in the power of God to get you there, to provide that inheritance, to give you eternal life. It doesn't come any other way. All we have to do is surrender in faith to the fact that we can't save ourselves, claim the blood of Jesus as the sacrifice for which we can, can bring forgiveness from God for our sins, and then trust him to bring us to heaven. That's the story, and that's what Peter's talking about here. Now, I know we've gone a little bit long today, but man, I, I, I can't think of a greater message to be reminded of than that we are secure in the hand of God. And as you go forth from this place this week, hopefully your attitude echoes what we read in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because it's Him, in him that we have everything. Not just now, but for what's to come in the future. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement today and the reminder of what we have in you, in Christ. Because of your power, because of your promises, we have no doubts. We don't need to fear. We know where we're headed if we're trusting in you. But Lord, for those who are not believing, who have doubt about the eternal life, doubt about what you can do and what you want to do, Lord, I pray that you would Just work in their hearts now. Help them to submit to this truth. Help them to accept the fact that Jesus is our Messiah. He is our Savior. And he can give us everything we need, both now and forever. And so we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing our closing hymn this morning.